Well, thus far in our class, uh, as we've been looking at the biblical foundations of marriage that are established by God, and as that is revealed in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we've seen that God is the sovereign designer, and he created male and female in his image, and creating man and woman with complete equality as his image bearers, and yet within that equality, having distinct and complementary roles. And as we've seen, the man was created uh, to lead with delegated authority in the fulfilling of God's purposes. And the wife was created to be a helper suitable to man, wonderfully fashioned to be his perfect needed companion in the fulfilling of God's purposes, in the fulfilling of God's mission. And God's design for a man and for a woman in marriage is wise, it is beautiful, and it is good, and it filters into all of creation. And as such, as we regard marriage in this way, it's not to be understood as a sacrament, as it were. Some of you may come from a Roman Catholic background, and that's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, that it is a sacrament. In other words, that marriage and the marriage relationship is a means of obtaining special saving grace from God. But that's not what Scripture teaches. And marriage is also not to be understood as a mere contract, which is the prevailing secular view of marriage in our Western culture. And this view sees marriage as nothing more than a bilateral contract between two people that is voluntarily formed, maintained, and dissolved when expedient. And against these wrong views, what we have seen uh, repeatedly is that the biblical truth of marriage is fundamentally covenantal, which is to say, as Kostenberger and Jones affirm, that marriage involves a sacred lifelong bond. It's a covenant between a man and a woman before God with mutual obligations given by God. And I mentioned Kostenberger and Jones. If you see on the back of the handout, that those are the authors of the book that we're referencing uh, and using as sort of a guideline within this series as we interact with God's Word. It's a very um, dense but very helpful book in giving us a right understanding of God's design and purposes in marriage and all the different uh, things that relate to that. And th those, of course, form the topics, by the way, of the of what we're addressing each week. And you can see that outline for where we've been and where we're going on the back of your bulletin as well. But uh, Kostenberger and Jones uh, say it this way, that in God's good design, and this is in your notes as well, marriage is a covenant involving a sacred bond between a man and a woman instituted by and publicly entered into before God and normally consummated, which means sealed, uh, by sexual intercourse. Now, this is what marriage is in God's design, whether or not people acknowledge it. This is what marriage is. And I want to encourage you to hang on to this definition because it's going to set the framework for what we're going to be considering today about maleness and femaleness and sex within marriage. And wherever you may be in your life, these are vital truths to understand from a biblical perspective. And so they're important for all of us. But before we move on, I want to highlight something in particular. And that is this, that central to this biblical foundational understanding of marriage is a truth that I think needs to be trumpeted again and again and again. 
And it's the truth that God's design is good. That God's design is good. In fact, it is very, very good. Now, many of you know that this is declared explicitly at the end of chapter 1. After God has completed his creative work, we read that God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And that needs to be declared again and again and again. Then the very goodness of marriage in God's design, I believe, is described at the end of Genesis chapter 2, in verses 24 and 25, chapter 2 goes into more detail about how God brought about first creating man and then creating woman out of man. But at the very end of that chapter, it says, Therefore, in verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, that's really a description of the very goodness of the whole of God's creation that is spoken of explicitly at the end of chapter 1. There it is described. And so before the fall of mankind into sin through Adam and Eve's rebellion, in their one flesh union of marriage, they tasted a depth and a fullness of vulnerable, safe, unashamed intimacy which included sexual intimacy that was very, very good. And it's important to understand that the New Testament also affirms the goodness of God's design in marriage. Now, I'm going to mention a number of passages as we go through things today. Some I'll just reference, others I'll read. Uh, some of them are listed there in your notes, others of them aren't. But I'd encourage you to make note of this one in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5. And the Apostle Paul here is correcting false teaching. Listen to what he declares. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, people who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And then he goes on to say, for everything created by God, and in the immediate context, he's speaking with reference to foods and to marriage, which would certainly encompass every aspect of marriage. He says, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so he's affirming the goodness of God's design in all that he created. And he's counteracting that demonic false teaching that would say, no, certain things are bad. Marriage and the physical elements of, of, of marriage are bad and certain foods are bad. Paul's saying, no, it's all good if it's understood in the context of God's holy will and purposes. Now, there's a parallel truth that the Bible, sadly, there's a parallel truth that the Bible uh, both declares and describes from Genesis 3 all onward, and that is simply that sin is bad. Sin is very, very bad. And sin by its very nature is deceptive. In other words, sin makes God's good look bad, and it makes sin look good. 
It's a total reversal at the heart of what sin is. And we see the impact and the consequences of sin show up immediately following Adam and Eve's rebellion in chapter 3. In chapter 4, those consequences come with hatred and with jealousy as their first son, Cain, murders his younger brother, Abel, because of hatred and jealousy. He murders him in cold blood. And really, from there onward, mankind's sin is kind of like an endless avalanche of dysfunction and destruction and death. And this avalanche has cascaded down from generation to generation. We see this in scripture and we also know it in our own personal and family experiences, don't we? Both directly and indirectly, sin impacts all of us. Guilt, shame, fear, lies, selfishness, division, perversion, hatred, jealousy, abuse, adultery, murder, brokenness, divorce, pain, sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. But see, this is where the hope of the gospel of Christ, the hope of the gospel, the good news is, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And this is the, the message of scripture. The reality of God's goodness in all of his good purposes, the reality of the badness of sin, and yet God's gracious, loving, powerful work to, to bring a remedy to sin through Christ and through the gospel. And so that needs to be trumpeted again and again and again as well. God's very good creational design involving the covenant of marriage has been polluted and corrupted by sin but God has provided a remedy for sin through faith in Jesus Christ. And so through his life, death, and resurrection, uh, God is working by his spirit to save people from their sins. He's working to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. And so this is the hope of the gospel, friends. And it's good to be reminded of this even as we consider these delicate, sensitive somewhat awkward matters. We need to look to what God has to say and to align our thinking, to align our living with that. And so again, wherever you may be in your life today regarding your own sin and or the ways that you've been impacted by the sins of others, Jesus is always supreme and he's always sufficient for all that you need. And where sin has abounded, his grace abounds all the more. And God wants every single one of us to trust and to obey him because he aims to transform us into the goodness of his righteousness and his holiness in Jesus. And he desires that for all of us. And so I want to just kind of set that out as an overarching reality for us to lay hold of, even as we look at these matters. And so given God's good covenant, uh, his good covenantal design for marriage is a sacred bond between a man and a woman instituted by, publicly entered into before God and normally consummated by sexual intercourse, I want to answer three questions today. And this forms the focus of what you have in your notes there. First question is, what are some implications of marriage being a covenant before God? That's the first thing we'll look at. Second of all, what are God's good purposes for sex within marriage? 
And then third, what are some challenges to God glorifying sex in marriage? And as I said, we're going to be looking at these things in a very high altitude kind of way. And as we move along, uh, if you have questions, if you have thoughts that you'd like to interact, um, as always, don't hesitate to interrupt. Uh, part of the nature of our time in this equipping hour is, is to be somewhat interactive. So if you have questions or thoughts, don't hesitate to, to jump in. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be moving at a, at a fairly uh, purposeful pace as we move through things. But, but welcome any questions or thoughts, so don't hesitate. So let's look first of all then at this first question. What are some of the implications of marriage being a covenant before God? And there's a number of them that I want to hold before you. First of all, marriage is permanent. Marriage is permanent, I should say, in this life. That is God's design. It is a lifelong covenant. There in Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6, which is echoed again in Mark chapter 10 uh, as a parallel passage, uh, we read in verse 4 of chapter 19 that he, Jesus, answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's basically quoting there Genesis. And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then he says, what therefore God has joined, let not man separate. And so what Jesus says here, grounded in God's creative work, could not be more explicit. God designed marriage, and it is God that joins a husband and a wife together in one flesh. And it's to be permanent in this life. This is why, as we're told in, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, God hates divorce. And he permits it only in certain prescribed circumstances. And we'll be talking in more detail about matters related to divorce and remarriage in an upcoming lesson. But fundamentally, God's design and his intention is that marriage is permanent. It is a lifelong bond, a lifelong covenant. Well, then related to that, number two, a second implication is that marriage is sacred. Marriage is sacred. And all that we read in Genesis 1 and then particularly in chapter 2, which gives us more details about God creating man and then woman, is that it is his design. And by, because of that, it is sacred. And this is just to affirm again that marriage is not an invention of mankind. It did not originate through social or civil initiative, but through God's sovereign will and design. That's why no person or no government can redefine marriage. It's sacred as it is designed by God. It's not merely a human agreement between two consenting people, but it's a covenant relationship before and under God. And this is why the, the idea of same-sex marriage is an absolute oxymoron. It does not exist. God and God alone, not people or the government, defines and establishes what marriage is. And marriage is, as I said, a sacred bond between a man and a woman instituted by God and publicly entered into before him. Marriage is fundamentally of God, and it's about God. Again, whether anyone acknowledges that or not, 
This is the testimony of God in his word. Well, then a third implication is that marriage is intimate. That marriage is intimate. Uh, We see that with what is described at the end of chapter 2, that the man and woman were one flesh, that they were naked, that they were unashamed. There is a God-designed depth of intimacy that he intends. And we recognize and understand that marriage is the, perhaps the most intimate of human relationships because God unites one man and one woman in one flesh. And this involves, as we see there at the end of Genesis 2, leaving and cleaving. It's a leaving of one's family of origin, and it's a cleaving to one's spouse, thus establishing a new family unit that is distinct from the two originating families. That doesn't mean that those relationships end, but there's a distinction and a uniqueness that a new family is being formed when a man and a woman become husband and wife. And an important side note there is to understand, sometimes we think that, you know, the family comes when children come. You know, then the family is there. You know, it's, it's just a marriage, but then it's a family when kids come. Well, no, kids don't make it a family. Kids add to the family, but the family is centered in the husband and wife relationship. That's the new family, the leaving and cleaving of these two together in ultimately one flesh. So this intimate one flesh union between a husband and a wife, and this is important as well, I believe, is both expressed and cultivated in their sexual relationship. It's both expressed and cultivated in their sexual relationship. And so this means that in a sense, sex is both a thermometer and a thermostat, if you will. It gives some expression to the nature of intimacy, but it also contributes to the cultivation of that intimacy. In other words, a married couple's sexual intimacy both pictures and nurtures their total intimacy, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And so this intimate reality exposes really the wickedness of sexual immorality in all of the different forms in which it can be seen. Fundamentally, it is a subverting of God's good, intimate, one flesh design. Now, this is spoken of so many places. One place is in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 6. And just listen to what Paul says in verses uh, 15 and 16 and see how this, this, this echoes implications from the intimacy of marriage that we see even back in Genesis. He says in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. He goes on to say, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis. He goes on to say, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality. And this is echoed again and again and again. It helps us understand why sexual sin is so sinful. Because it's an attack upon the goodness of what God designed. And the intimacy of what God designed. Well, that leads on. And and again, it's echoed many other places. For instance, Hebrews 13 verse 4 where uh, we're exhorted that the marriage bed is to be kept pure. And many other places as well. Well, a fourth implication is that marriage is mutual. Marriage is mutual. 
Now, this is kind of self-evident, but needs to be spoken of as we see it articulated again at the end of Genesis 2, the passages in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, uh, which speak of dynamics of, of husband and wife roles and responsibilities. It's mutual. It's a mutual relationship with mutual and complementary roles and obligations. And so husband and wife must grow with mutual humility, trust, and obedience to God, seeking God's sovereign will, not their own selfish desires. There's a mutuality. And when husband and wife are mutually seeking God, their relationship will grow in a mutual intimate relationship of trust, of safety, of vulnerability, of dignity, respect, and care. And this, of course, would include a patient, eager, mutual willingness to forgive and to accept and to restore one another whenever sin occurs. And it occurs often in marriages, as any of us can testify to. But there's a mutuality to these matters. And then a fifth implication, uh, which again is self-evident but needs to be stated, is that marriage is exclusive. Marriage is exclusive. And this logically follows from all of the above. There's no other human relationship, including the relationship of parents with their children, that must interfere in a wrong way with the permanent, sacred, intimate, mutual relationship of husband and wife. And again, this is why sexual immorality in any form, premarital sex, adultery in thoughts or actions, homosexuality, self-pleasuring, anything else we might identify, it's why they are so sinful, because they're an attack on the exclusiveness of the marriage bond. Sexual immorality corrupts the exclusive purity that God intends in the one flesh relationship of a husband and wife. Now, again, this is implicit to a man and a wife, to, a, to, to him leaving his father and mother, cleaving to his wife, the two becoming one flesh. It's inherent to that, but it's echoed many other places in Scripture. One of those that I'll make reference to a few times is in Proverbs chapter 5. I've listed that there in your notes. And uh, this is an exhortation as, uh, as, as a father is exhorting his son to walk in the fear of the Lord and to avoid all of the dangers of sin, including the adulterous woman, uh, which is both literal and metaphorical for any sense of sexual immorality. But listen to what he says in Proverbs 5. I'll start in verse 15 and see the exclusiveness that he's, that he's uh, provoking here and spurring on. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the desert? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he's led astray. You see how he's, 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 he's compelling him to be devoted and faithful exclusively to the wife of your youth. I'll tell you just by way of, of, of little personal testimony. I came to faith in Christ when I was a senior in high school. 
and uh, God mercifully saved me. I won't go into all the details of all of that, but prior to that, I was a typical worldly pagan, and I lived only according to my desires. And again, don't need to go into all the details of that, uh, but, but, I, but I was a pagan, and I was involved in all kinds of things that I shouldn't have been involved with. And it was a number of years after I came to faith in Christ, uh, one time spending time in God's Word. I was here in Proverbs chapter 5 and, and just praying and meditating. This was, I don't know, a couple of years before I got married, so I was in my mid to late 20s, I think. But reading at the end of Proverbs 5 and, and reading what he's saying there, and there's this positive exhortation of, of delighting and being intoxicated with the wife of your youth, it was the first time that there was a sense of understanding, wow, God says this is good because everything in my life had been filled with so much sin and so much shame and guilt and ugliness that, I, that my mind was having to be reprogrammed, and it still is. And that's why I affirm again that, that we need to understand what makes sin so sinful is that it is, it is a complete subverting of God's goodness. And so all that God intends in marriage with its permanency, its sacredness, its intimacy, its, its mutuality, its exclusiveness is because it is good. And this is God's good design. Uh, the other passages, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 7 in a little bit, uh, but the other passage there under that fifth point, 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, is where Paul is laying out uh, qualifications for those who would be in pastoral leadership roles, pastor elder roles in a church, so to exemplify uh, what the whole church is to be. And the very first thing he says is that they're to be a, woman, a, a one-woman man, uh, to only have devotion to one woman if they're married. He's not requiring that people be married, but, but he's affirming if they are that they're uniquely devoted. There's an exclusiveness. And it's just affirming God's design. And so uh, these are some implications of marriage being a sacred bond between a man and a woman instituted by, publicly entered into before God and normally consummated with sex. It is uh, these implications, and this is God's good purposes. And this helps us understand that marriage is not an end in itself, but in God's design, it's part of the larger redemptive work that he's doing in Jesus to save people from their sins and to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And so in a very real way, marriage then uh, becomes an opportunity for husbands and wives to live out their discipleship to Christ uh, in that larger framework. And this includes living out a, a biblical theology and, and honoring of his intentions with uh, the sexual aspect of the relationship. So I'm flying through that, but these are some of the implications of marriage being a covenant before God. Uh, any thoughts or questions before we move on to the next thing here? Paul. Uh, Pastor, back on uh, uh, number 1A, where you said marriage is permanent in this life. Now I know what we... Both, both husband, if both husband and wife are believers, they go to heaven. We know it says that we know people as they are. Is our feelings when we get there? They'll be totally erased because we're consumed by the glory of God and worshiping Him. So we won't even recognize, and we will know the person obviously, but we won't recognize them as our husband or wife. Well, I can't say experientially, because I haven't been there yet. Um, but Jesus is, is very clear in affirming that in, here, in heaven there is no marriage and no one is given in marriage. 
um, there seems to be indication we're going to know people. And, and so at some level, I think that, that'll be some aspect, but it will be in a whole different framework because collectively as the body, as the bride of Christ, I think, yes, there is going to be a sense that we're going to be so overwhelmed and consumed with Jesus, our groom, and the fullness of his glory and goodness. Um, I, I, I think there'll be a, a depth of fullness in our relationships with one another, all glorified in his presence. So, again, I, who knows exactly what that looks like, what that's going to be like, but there seems to be that indication we have some sense of it. Yeah. Tom? Yeah, that's always been like the one thing that's like kind of confused me and just made me really think really hard about it because like I have seen like you know obviously clearly that Jesus said that about like um, marriage being an earthly thing and that we go to heaven no one will be given in marriage um, or be married and so like I just kind of like my, my takeaway from it is obviously we don't know what heaven is truly going to be like until we actually experience it um, for ourselves but um, it feels to me like maybe because we will be getting new bodies and we'll be transformed um, in a different type of way maybe our perception and, like, our human perception, like, you know, because I, I think about, like, you know, our feelings and all the, you know, memories and all that kind of stuff would, like, kind of, like, you know, make it hard for you to kind of look at someone that you've spent your life with, you know, in that way. But, oh, we're, we're just brothers and sisters of Christ now, you know what I'm saying? But, like, I, I think that maybe because of that, that transformative process of being, you know, in eternity with, you know, um, God and Christ, like, you know, uh, will be so different and so transformed that that won't necessarily be a factor, I guess. But, like, yeah. I think about that all the time. Yeah, it's hard to get our arms around in some ways or our minds around but but one element of it I believe as well you know many times in the gospels Jesus made very very clear like in Luke chapter 9 Luke chapter 14 other places that love and devotion and delight in him must be infinitely superior to any human relationship, even the most intimate of relationships between husband and wife, parents and children. And that's not to discount that there is a profoundness and a richness to those human relationships of marriage and children by extension and that sort of thing, but it also speaks to the fact um, that what God has given in Christ, what he calls us to, is infinitely superior. In fact, in some places, Jesus uses hyperbole to say that, it, that, that we must hate our father and our mother and our sister and our brother. He's not obviously saying literally hate, but he's using that in, in a hyperbolic way to um, highlight how great our love and delight for him. And, and a very practical point of that by application is, is don't idolize marriage, uh, which is very easy to do. You know, and our world doesn't have anything else, so that's what often gets idolized. That's why we have love songs that we have. That's why we have rom-coms. That's why we have, you know, everything, because it puts marriage in this, you know, it's like the ultimate, ultimate. And it's, it's wonderful, and it's important, and it has a place in God's design, but it's not ultimate. Christ is ultimate. So, yeah, it's vital. Dave. I'm not sure if this is the right class, but in this series, will there be a class that... Uh, sort of a Christian biblical view of dating and courtship and what that looks like and sort of like there may be people that desire to be married mm -hmm. how do you get from A to B yeah. what, that, what does that look like I'm so glad you asked that question Dave um, the question for the recording is whether or not there's uh, going to be discussion about dating courtship God's thought in that and and I've actually thought Tim and I haven't had opportunity to interact but, th but there may be a place of, of a follow up <laughs> 
regarding that. Yeah, new sermon series. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, that's right. We'll answer it all in the sermon series. No, no, I've been thinking about that, Dave, and, and think, yeah, there's there's a need because there's a lot of single folks, you know, and 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 yeah, there's so much to consider there. You know, marriage, no one is incomplete if they're not married. Everyone is complete in Christ. He's our joy. He's our hope. He's our life. Um, so marriage may or may not be part of God's uh, will and his purposes, but there's lots of things to consider, and it's certainly a good thing. And Anyway, so, so we need to chew on that and think about that. Absolutely. We do cover it uh, on the 14th of January. Okay. Singleness. Gotcha. Yep. So we need to talk about, yeah, we will a little bit in the back. So appreciate that shout out as well. But it is, um, and it's vital to think biblically because there's so many unbiblical things in the context of, of dating. So, amen, I appreciate that. And thanks for highlighting that, Matt. Well, let's move on and talk about God's good purposes for sex within marriage. Um, there's a few passages I want to ask uh, for volunteers to read. Um, first of all, somebody to, not yet, but when I call on you to have you read this, somebody to read 1 John 1, verse 9, through chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, would somebody be able to read that in a few moments? 1 John 1, verse 9, uh, through chapter 2, verse 2. Matt, okay? And then somebody else to read Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Revelation, Tyler, perfect. We'll get to those in a little bit. A little bit later, I may have some other passages. But uh, just remember, as we move into this, God's original design in all his creation, which included sex within marriage, was very good, as it's described and identified there in Genesis 1 and 2. God's redeemed people are to rejoice in his goodness, which is why we need to think biblically, theologically, about his good purposes for sex in marriage. Now, before I highlight the specific points that I have there in your notes, I want to mention a few initial thoughts, sort of as uh, disclaimers, maybe caveats as we look into this. First of all, uh, talking about sex is understandably a bit awkward, yet it is vitally important. Um, it's awkward because it's very personal but in one sense, it's not exactly private. And what I mean by that is that we generally talk and act like sex doesn't happen, and yet we rejoice when people become pregnant and have babies. I think we all understand it's not the stork, right? It's not the stork. So it's a little bit awkward, but talking appropriately about sex, and that's my prayer and intention in doing this, it's vitally important because God designed sex and his word says much about it. And moreover, as we all know, our culture bombards us with false ideas that view sex as merely biological or recreational and a matter of personal preference. As, as one other pastor has said, it's just in the air we breathe more than we realize. And the more we think biblically and theologically about sex and God's good design, coupled with submitting our sexuality and our whole lives to the lordship of Jesus, the more we'll flourish and the more we'll bless others and advance the gospel and glorify God. And so, friends, this is vitally important, whether you're married, whether you're single, because every believer is a part of God's family. So I want to make that very clear. 
Another initial thought is, is just to affirm, I've kind of alluded to this, this is a high altitude overview that I want to provide in these matters. Obviously, in a class of this nature and time, uh, we're not going to cover every detail and implication. And I'm really going to be focusing on the why of sex, not the what. Um, and I also know that I'm probably going to provoke more questions and issues than, than I'll answer. Questions like, well, what about this? Or how come this? Or what should I do in this situation? And with other questions that may be provoked, I would just encourage you to email all of your questions to Tim, okay? <laughs> just, just put them to Tim, even though my email's on the back there too. Um, no, seriously, there are real questions because, because all these things impact our lives. And if we can be a help in, in interacting about those things, even if you want to submit questions anonymously, you know, write them out and drop them in the, in the mail or drop them in, the, in, in, the, in a box back there in the, in the office. We're happy to interact about that because, because how these things play out in our lives are very, very significant. But again, I'll probably provoke more questions than we might answer. Last thing I want to mention by way of uh, sort of a caveat is recognizing this. Most, if not all of us, have been deeply impacted, even deeply wounded by sexual sin, perversion, and deviation. It impacts all of us in various ways, either our own sin or the sin of others, usually some mixture of both. And I just want to affirm again that whatever the case, Christ is eternally sufficient and Christ is supreme to forgive, to cleanse, and to heal, and to restore. This is the hope of the gospel. Whether it's in view of your own sin, whether it's in view of the sin of others, Christ forgives and he cleanses and he heals and he restores. And even if you've been tragically hurt by somebody else's sin in a permanently life-altering way, Christ is sufficient. Christ is your hope. Um, Matt, if you'd read 1 John 1, verses 9 through, verse 9 through 2, verse 2. Confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay. That's the hope of every believer. If we confess our sins, Christ, the righteous one who has, who has borne our sin and who is now uh, in the presence of God as our advocate, as it were, in his righteousness and in the sufficiency of his death, he both forgives and cleanses. Whatever we've done, wherever we've been, he is more than sufficient. Again, as Paul said, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And again, even if something has happened that has altered your life permanently, either because of your own sin or the sin of others, this is where our hope goes beyond this life, and it points to eternity. And Tyler, if you want to read Revelation 21, listen to this. Through what verse? Verses 1 to 4. 1 to 4, yeah. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen. Beloved, that's the hope. That is our eternal hope. And whether you are in or have known a great marriage, whether your marriage has been a, been a landmine of destruction, our hope is in Christ and in being in his presence in heaven where there will be no more tears. And sometimes, oftentimes in this life, there are deep tears, real tears, lifelong tears. But we look to that day when he will wipe everyone away from our eyes. So keep that in mind, our eternal hope in Christ. Whether issues have come because of your own sin or the sin of others or some mixture of both, his grace is sufficient, and that's where our hope must be, okay? So with those things in mind, let me give you this core truth, and it's there in your notes. In God's good design, sex is one vital and beautiful aspect of the one flesh union a man and a woman share in marriage. It's one vital and beautiful aspect of the one flesh union a man and a woman share in marriage. Now, this statement is indicating that sex is not the only aspect of a marriage, but it is a vital and, and I would say indispensable aspect. Uh, this last summer, we had to buy a new car. Our existing car died, the transmission went out, so we had to buy a new car. And we bought a new used car, 2017 Toyota RAV. We love it. It's really great. But it has a sunroof. And we really enjoy the sunroof, especially, you know, obviously when it's warmer out in the days or the evenings, having it open, seeing the sky, seeing the stars, enjoying the fresh air. We really enjoy the sunroof. It's really nice. It's really pleasant. But obviously, that sunroof is not essential to the functioning of a car, right? Could take it or leave it. I think, sadly, a lot of people think towards God's design with sex as kind of a take-it-or-leave-it kind of a thing that way. You know, it's nice, it's pleasant, it's kind of enjoyable, but it's not absolutely essential. Well, I would say, no, it's not the single most important thing, but it is a vital, beautiful, indispensable aspect. It's not a take-it-or-leave-it. Like to use the car illustration, you might think of it like a, maybe a steering wheel. You know, a steering wheel to a car is not the thing that ultimately makes the car go. But if you don't have a steering wheel and use it appropriately and skillfully, uh, you're going to have a lot of problems with the car, right? <laughs> I think of that maybe as an imperfect illustration of God's purposes with sex in marriage. It's not the thing necessarily that makes the marriage go. But it's very necessary to utilizing all of God's design in marriage for how he's intended. And if it's misused and not used wisely, skillfully, appropriately, you're going to have a lot of problems in the marriage. And so I think it is vital and beautiful as one aspect of what God has designed. And he has designed it to be shared to his glory. So what are his good purposes? Well, let me just highlight five of these. And for the sake of time, 
Um, just mention these passages that are here. I encourage you to look at them. Some we've already uh, looked at a little bit. One or two of them I might uh, look at as I'm thinking about it here as we move along. Um, but I'm just going to touch on these for us to understand. Um, so first of all, uh, God designed sex to be procreational. This is pretty obvious, right? Uh, but this is self-evident within God's creation mandate, as we see there in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. It's echoed again in chapter 9, verse 1, following the flood. Uh, God reiterates this mandate with Noah and his offspring, um, that they're to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And obviously, obeying that mandate involves sharing insects within marriage. Children can't happen apart from that. This is God's design. And as we know, God wonderfully outfitted a man and a woman with complementary equipment for the production of children. And so sex in marriage serves God's procreational purposes to fill and to cultivate the earth. Now, in one of the coming lessons as well, we're going to interact more about this matter of having, not having children. There are numerous things to consider there, so we'll look at that more fully uh, but it's right to affirm this is one reason, one purpose uh, that God has given this. Babies don't come any other way. Second of all, God designed sex to be relational, to be relational. And there in chapter 2, uh, verses 18 to 25, is, is where we get a fuller description of God creating woman out of man because God himself said it is not good for the man to be alone. And so God created woman for man in part so that he wouldn't be alone. And Kostenberger and Jones in their book, uh, they say this uh, regarding this relational aspect, quote, the male-female relationship, including its sexual components, serves also the purposes of alleviating their aloneness and of providing companionship, resulting in the man and woman becoming one flesh, end quote. And they're affirming that God designed marriage to be the most intimate of human relationships. And again, this is a new intimate family unit. And what this underscores again is that sex is so much more than just biological, uh, which is part of what separates mankind from animals. Part of the way that mankind and mankind alone as man and woman are uniquely created in the image of God. And so it's not only for companionship and relational, it's also bound up in God's very mission that he's given to uh, rule the earth and to uh, be fruitful and to multiply, but it encompasses this as well. Because of that, there's some, some implications we could tease out. Uh, this would suggest that, that the sexual relationship in marriage should be somewhat frequent as possible and reasonable. Uh, that's what Paul affirms in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And also it indicates that this relational design of sex indicates why um, self-pleasuring is sinful, why it's a distortion of God's purpose in the relational uh, intimacy of marriage. I want to look really briefly at 1 Corinthians 7 uh, to sort of highlight uh, this point uh, regarding the relational aspect, and we don't have time to, to fully unpack this, but in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul gives a lot of time to talking about matters related to marriage, matters related to uh, sex within marriage. 
And listen to what he says, verses 1 to 5. It says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I think he's particularly affirming that in, in the context of any aspect of sexual immorality. But then he goes on to say, verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife of her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So he says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, among other things, and there's a lot to consider there, there's a, there's a giving up of ownership of our own bodies when we get married in, in a very real sense. It could be a whole lesson unpacking all of that. But suffice to say, Paul assumes that the, 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 the sexual aspect of a couple's relationship will be somewhat frequent and only to be uh, deprived from, if you will, by mutual agreement and for a limited time and even for the purposes of more fully seeking the Lord in prayer. So it just sort of underscores this relational aspect. Well, another point, and again, I'm kind of flying through these, is that God designed sex, number three, letter C, to be for the public good. He designed sex to be for the public good. And we don't think about this very often. But the point here, which is really implicit to God's creation mandate back in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, is that sexual faithfulness and purity in marriage benefits the overall public good. The public good of fruitfulness and of order and of productivity and of beauty, and of joy, and of the multiplication of life. Think about it. Faithful sex in marriage benefits children, extended family, neighbors, co-workers, and society as a whole. I don't have time to look at it, but the passage I list there in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5, talks about the evil and the difficulty of the last days that we live in, which refers to, to all of the days from the first coming of Christ until his second coming. They are evil, difficult days because of selfishness and pride and brokenness. And, and Paul goes on there with many uh, descriptive phrases uh, explaining that. And it certainly encompasses sexual immorality and perversion. In other words, it works against the public good of what God meant society to be. And so faithfulness in marriage even contributes, and in, in our sexual relationship in marriage, contributes to the public good. And again, this is why Paul exhorts as he does there in 1 Corinthians 5. So that's another reason that God has designed sex, for the public good. Letter, letter D, God designed sex to be pleasurable, to be pleasurable. Uh, we understand that. The passage I read earlier from Proverbs chapter 5, um, the, you know, the full language of being intoxicated, being taken captive, as it were. It's very, very strong language that speaks of the, the intensity of pleasure that is to be enjoyed. The entire book of the Song of Solomon is a, is a very godly, appropriate celebration of sexual intimacy in a devoted marriage relationship. 
And so it's richly and tastefully expressed in these passages. And again, it's inherent uh, to what Paul says in the passage I read earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Everything created by God is good. Nothing's to be rejected. A little bit later in chapter 6, verse 17 of 1 Timothy, Paul says that God is the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And this is a gift. It's not ultimate. It's not to be worshipped, but it is to be enjoyed in, in God's design within marriage. In a safe, trusting, vulnerable relationship that encompasses mutual dignity and respect and honor and care. And so like all of God's good gifts, like food, I had some breakfast this morning that my dear wife made for me, some scrambled eggs with bacon and then some potatoey things. And, and you know what I did when I ate it? I enjoyed it with my coffee and it was wonderful and I thanked my wife for it. But I enjoyed it. Why? Because it was a good thing. And see, part of the, the residual impact of so much sin and perversion sexually in our world that impacts us as we continue to think it's bad, it's bad. No, in God's design, it's good. And we need, to, we need to pursue it in that way. It's not to be idolized or worshiped for selfish gain, but to be enjoyed for God's glory in its right context. And then letter E, this is so important and also mysterious. God designed sex to be anticipatory. He designed it to be anticipatory which is to say expectant and hopeful of greater eternal spiritual realities. Now, uh, in God's design, the sweetest, dare I say the wildest, most pleasurable sex in marriage is at best temporary and anticipatory. And for all that God designed sex in marriage to be, it's not ultimate. Rather, it is a shadow pointing to the substance of what's ultimate. Now, what do I mean? Well, the whole biblical storyline of God's saving work in Jesus, as Tim has explained in the previous couple of lessons, especially in the first class two weeks ago, all of God's storyline involves four parts, four main parts, creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation, the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. And this redemptive storyline whereby God restores sinful people to union with himself in Christ is of eternal, ultimate significance. And again, human marriage, on the other hand, while important and while a blessing, is not eternal or ultimate. Rather, as we've seen, marriage, including God's purpose for sex, it anticipates the eternal consummation and union of Christ with his people. Marriage as a whole does, and, and sexuality within marriage is certainly a vital and important component of that. Now, it's in Matthew 22, verses 29 and 30, where Jesus says that there is no human marriage in heaven. So we understand that. And then in Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32, as Paul has been talking about husband and wife, roles and responsibilities in God's designs and purposes in marriage, he says there, uh, he says there as he's concerning this one flesh union of a husband and wife, he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
Now, he's just talked about the one flesh union of husband and wife that encompasses and includes that sexual aspect of the relationship. He says, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You say, well, how do you explain this? And I say, I don't know. <laughs> it's a profound mystery. But in God's design, in some way, he's purposed and designed sex to be anticipatory of the fuller, deeper, eternal union of Christ and the church. Temporary sex within marriage is indeed a delightful shadow, but it's a shadow of the substance of the eternal union of Christ with his people. And it needs to be reminded and remembered that way. Um, it's not eternal in terms of God's design of sex in this life, but it is anticipatory. So in his good design, sex is a vital, beautiful aspect of the one flesh union that a man and a woman share in marriage. Again, it's not the only aspect, but it's vital, and I think it's indispensable. It both expresses and it cultivates the, the one flesh union that God has designed a man and a woman to have. And again, a, a huge implication of all of this in understanding his good design for sex within marriage is that it reveals the bad wicked destructiveness of every sinful deviation from that design. Pornography, fantasy, romance novels and movies and TV shows, premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, and every other form of sexual immorality is bad and it's sinful because it pollutes, it distorts, and it undermines God's good, very good design. And that's why if you're called to singleness, he calls you to purity before him with self-control in that singleness. If you're presently married, he calls you to purity with self-control in your marriage within the framework of all that we've seen and talked about. So in other words, God, in all of his prohibitions against sexual, sexual immorality, isn't just that he's trying to keep us from something bad, he is, but he's doing so because he's wanting to keep us for something good and pure and holy and right. And we're all in process and we all need his help to those ends because it's easy to live and to be driven by the flesh rather than by God's spirit and what he's designed and revealed in his word. But that's what he calls us to. The beauty of who he is and the beauty of what he has designed. Now, I've said a lot and we've moved very fast. I'm only gonna to touch on this very last matter related to challenges and these will be things that could be unpacked more even in, in, in discussion. But any, any thoughts, questions, pushback, anything at all uh, regarding what we've, what we've looked at so far? I know we've flown through it very fast. Everybody's like, yeah, I don't, uh, it's getting kind of warm in here. <laughs> okay, yes, Taba. The nature of humanity? Yeah, uh -huh. the nature of being a human. Uh, it's like, it's like, uh, we talked about um, the scripture that said, uh, um, since we lack self-control, you know, it's supposed to require within a marriage. And so when we're called to singleness, you know, um, there's still that that struggle with self-control. There's still that, you know, struggle with desire. So I think that when we talk about, like, um, idolizing a marriage or idolizing a page or idolizing, you know, a connectedness with another human being, that's why it's hard to kind of like just um, 
called to see what it's because it's like you have that inner desire, you know, the nature of, you know, the fleshly desire, just like, you know, that self-control aspect, you know what I'm saying? So, yep. just speaking of that. Yeah, and, and we'll address that more in, in future classes as well, you know, but suffice to say, yeah, bridling our desires as it were, even in 1 Corinthians 5, in essence what Paul says is get married, you know, and, and for anybody for whom those desires are present, uh, there's one sense in which they're God, I mean, there's a very real sense in which they're God-given, and maybe part of the impetus that God is using to, to cause you to pray and to be on the lookout for getting married, not simply as a means of satisfying those desires. There's, there's a lot more to it, but that's an element of it. And, and that's a right and a reasonable and a good thing, hand-in-hand uh, hand with seeking the Lord. Um, but, yeah, there's lots that could be said about that. One uh, quick side note I would say, too, it's interesting in, in a place like in, in the book of Titus, chapter 2, um, Paul is outlining numerous aspects of godly living for various groups of people. He talks about older men. He talks about older mm. women, younger men, younger women. And he has pretty detailed things to say to each group. With the exception of younger men, he simply says, be self-controlled. As if to say, just that's what you need to do, <laughs> you know. Don't make it complicated. And, and any man understands that. Any young man understands that, you know. So... Again, yeah, Taba, there's lots uh, that could be said, but, but all of it needs to be submitted to the Lordship of Christ, trusting his strength, trusting his power, using the means he's given to be self-controlled. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, when he's warning against any kind of sexual sin, even in our thoughts, he says we're to cut off our hands, gouge out our eyes, and, and which he's not saying literally do that. Again, he's hyperbolically speaking of uh, there needs to be a, a removal of every potential means of sinning, you know, making no provision for that. So it's a great question, though, and I think, I think anybody who's honest would, would understand and resonate with the wrestling of that. So, Tim? Yeah, that's why that's true and, and good. Like I, I, so that first Corinthians point is, seven point is really good. If this is God's ordained, good, legitimate outlet for these desires, it's also there's saying that marriage doesn't obviate the need for self-control. It doesn't, it doesn't suddenly make that not an issue anymore. Yep. Um, I think when you're not married, it can be easy to think, like, if I was married, I wouldn't have any of these struggles and everything would be taken care of. And when you're married, you realize, wow, it's really complicated. And it's never, if you haven't, so maybe this is a constructive encouragement for singles, is as you're battling for self-control, this is, this is a discipline, a gracious virtue that the Holy Spirit needs to teach you that will benefit you for your whole life. Yep. And if you don't learn it, marriage will not save you. Yep. There, it, it just will never be enough to bridle the, all, the, all the things that sin wants to do. Yep. Amen. Excellent point. And that's just on that note, and I'll, Christina, get that in just a second. I mean, the, the, the very essence of following Jesus is what? Die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Self-denial self-control and and yeah it, so amen well, i appreciate you rounding that out fully so christina well just to tag on to that like you know like when people look at me they it with marriage and family they say you know my cup runneth over and then in the sense of like the blessings associated i have a good husband i've had 21 years and we've got a you know a full family and um and it is good it is good it's a sweet 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 blessing and christ is better and 
not even knowing that we've gone through deep loss, deep grief, deep sorrow, um, overwhelmingly, and, um, and in the midst of that, we count our blessings and we look around and we're thankful for those things that are the, the, the good marriage and the kids and the you know the, and the, the brothers and sisters in Christ. But at the end of the day, Christ is better, and in that those moments, uh, you know, of sweetness in the midst of of knowing that all of this could be taken away from me, but Christ cannot be. Yep. Um, that's you know that's what I, where I cling in the midst of my heartache and my lowest moments. And, Amen. Amen. Appreciate you sharing that. Yep. Well, let's, um, I'm just going to come close to wrapping up because we're just about out of time. And I, I'll just mention all of these items I want to mention here. I can't really explain. I, I would just say with all these things that I'm going to mention that are uh, in many ways um, challenges uh, to a God-glorifying uh, sex within marriage, uh, there are remedies in Christ. There are remedies in the gospel. There, there are means. But these are not easy fixes necessarily either um, because, because we're still sinners who are growing and being sanctified. If we know Christ, we're still battling sin, fighting sin, dealing with uh, consequences, all kinds of things. And so there's no quick fix, but there is hope in the gospel. So I just want to mention that because I can't unpack all of these in, in, in fullest ways. Uh, but things that can obviously be challenges. Here they are. Letter A, shame. Shame, um, which is understood either because of our sin or the sin of others. We often bring that into uh, marriage relationship. Letter B, embarrassment. Um, there's a vulnerability and uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a sense of freedom, and yet there can be embarrassment and even a sense of fear as it plays out in the marriage bed, as it were. Um, letter C, broken trust. Broken trust. Deeply understand this. The security and vulnerability that God intends in marriage uh, can evaporate uh, when trust is broken. And that's why there's a need to be humble, to be honest. Uh, trust grows as each spouse lives out the implications of marriage and lives within God's design for good sex in marriage. And when trust is broken, there needs to be confession and there needs to be forgiveness. There needs to be mutual patience as people, as one another grows. Uh, letter D is selfishness. Selfishness. One of the things that is very easy to think and it's very easy to say in marriage, even if we don't say it, even as Christians, is, well, I got my rights, you know. Uh, husband says, well, I've got my rights for my wife. And wife says, well, I've got my rights. Well, fundamentally, no, you have no rights. You gave up all of your rights when you came to faith in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't matters you address and you interact about and you talk about and you grow with one another and learn from one another. Um, but selfishness can, can show up in so many different ways in marriage. And it can be like an F5 tornado uh, when it comes to uh, the fullness of the relationship God intends. Um, again, to follow Christ means that we die to ourselves. And that has to play out in life in general. It certainly has to play out in marriage. And to fight against that by knowing Jesus, who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for others. Uh, so selfishness can be a, a challenge. Uh, letter E, busyness. Busyness. Um, we understand this as well. 
just the demands and responsibilities of life and work and children and all other kinds of demands. Uh, but again, even in, in what we've seen in numerous passages, what seems to be intimated by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is that there is to be a reasonable regularity uh, to the marriage bed. And then letter F, providence. Providence. And this is just sort of a catch-all in one sense, but it's affirming that there are different times, different seasons in any marriage. Issues of age, issues of health, issues of kids, issues of work schedules, everything can change and often does change in lots of different ways. And I like what Tim Challies, a blogger and an author, says that couples need to learn how to, how to dance metaphorically with every changing circumstance. Um, because it changes in marriage and, and there need to be new dances. So uh, again, all of those would be worthy of a lot of time and a lot of discussion. And if any of those touch a nerve, please don't hesitate to interact with me or Tim or a brother or sister in Christ um, to interact more fully uh, about these matters. But um, we'll close it off with here with just affirming again, God's design is good. And whether you're single, whether you're married, he aims to be sufficient for you and for you to have your hope and your worship focused squarely on him and, and living out what he desires in life and in singleness as well as in marriage. So um, happy to entertain other questions. If you want to email, call, uh, leave an anonymous note, any of that at all, we would be happy to interact about. But, but let me go ahead and close this in prayer for our time. Father, we thank you for brief time to, uh, to think about um, very significant and very powerful matters related to uh, relationships in general, your design of, of men and of women, uh, what that means in the covenant of marriage, what that means in your good purposes for sexuality within marriage. Uh, Father, as you know each one of us, you know our lives, may, may these things bear fruit for your glory and help us all to walk in step with your design, uh, to know your fullest blessings in Christ and to be instruments that you would use to bring those blessings to others in the knowledge of Christ. Thank you for the time we've shared in his name. Amen. Amen.